Hey folks, this episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by our friends at The Athletic. You can get all access to The Athletic's exclusive in-depth coverage of this unprecedented sports season and the one to come uh, by going to theathletic.com slash totalsoccer. That will help you receive 40% off an annual subscription, and that gives you access to obviously the soccer side and all the great content there, including the great NWSL content from Meg Linehan, uh, but then it also gives you access to the entire site. So if you want to read about football, baseball, basketball, hockey, and soccer and many other sports as well then that is how you could make that happen and you can sign up now to see for yourself the creativity reporting and storytelling that sets the athletic apart once again if you go to theathletic.com slash total soccer you could receive 40 percent off an annual subscription sports are back and you won't want to miss breaking stories on your favorite teams we hope to see you there And welcome to another episode of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I will be your host today. Daryl will be back to normal hosting duties uh, next week. But for now, it is me, and it's me talking to Lori Lindsay. You've heard Lori doing the color commentary for the NWSL Challenge Cup. She is here with me today to talk about the two semifinals that have happened, the final that is still to come, and of course, perhaps most importantly, about making her second appearance on the Total Soccer Show, which I'm going to assume means her first appearance was not terrible. But that's the hope. Lori, thanks so much for making another appearance. <laughs> Thank you. No, I'm happy to be here. And I really enjoyed my first time. So yeah. All right. thrilled to be All back. Right. Well, that one was in person. That does help a little bit in terms of sort of the back and forth of, of meeting. So I'm glad we have that experience. But in terms of not being there in person, you are obviously calling these games remotely. Uh, I'm assuming at least that you're not in Utah. Um, how has that process been uh, if you are calling it from a monitor? Because I've had to do it a couple times and it's way harder than I think people realize. Yeah, uh, we're actually, we are um, Florida, Mm -hmm. in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, so we are calling it remotely out of a studio that has done many remote um, broadcasts before, and that's what they specialize in, called Vista World Link. And so I've been familiar with them, called a lot of games out of here. Uh, It is. Well, one, I should just say, I don't think people realize what goes into a broadcast in Mm -hmm. general. So there's that, right? So when you think of like, you just see it on TV, you're like, oh, people just talking soccer, but there's so many thousands of people, hundreds of people behind the scenes, mm-hmm. putting in work, making things um, go smoothly. And then when you add it, when you're not live at the event, um, it's a, a whole nother challenge because you're speaking to camera people that are hundreds of thousands of miles, um, thousands of miles away from mm-hmm. you. So lots going into it. It is difficult to call um, because granted, we do have quite a few different camera angles, which helps. So it's not like um, I only see what's being put out on the program or on people's televisions at home. But at the same time, you still don't have the feel. You don't see what's going on on the benches. You can't see some reactions or coaching stuff that typically you can pick up that helps personally from an analyst. And as you would know, this, um, or color commentators, um, role, which is just kind of like the whole like felt experience of it all yep. is a little bit yep. different. Um, and I kind of think of that as a, as an analyst, um, is this all being a felt experience? And that's what I want to bring to people at home. So it is, it's a challenge in that way, but also potentially the way that broadcast is going to go because of financial, um, restraints and just expenses and how you can do, um, more productions, um, or quantity, right. Um, remotely. So, um, we'll see, but all in all, that's to say, 
amazing. It's been fun. It's been a wild event. I think the NWSL and the players have done an exceptional job. So I'm, I'm just thrilled in general to be a part of it. Uh, I do want to talk about the games, but I have another question for you about your sort of uh, preparation process. How have mm-hmm. you had to adjust? Like, what are is your usual preparation for uh, doing the color commentary, and how have you had to adjust it a little bit? What has been your approach in this tournament? Well, uh, typical. I like to say this reminds me why I love this so much, and it is a craft in its own. It reminds me a lot of playing, like the preparation. Um, the games are coming fast and furious, so it looks a little different than typically doing like one kind of key game a week or the game of the game of the week where wow. you would have, yeah. um, you know, a lot more time in between. But I think the, 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 the good thing about this has been, is we're covering the same eight teams, right? So there's been like storylines that evolve and continue and, um, are the players and the coaches and what they're telling us responding the way that they expected to on the field and all of that jazz. Um, but in general, um, you know, there's a lot of film watching. There's uh, just picking up different themes for players. There's a lot of coaches calls, uh, player calls. Um, you know, fortunately for me, I have some relationships with some of the coaches and typically we do coaching calls, but if not, I'll just text and say, Hey, can I ask you another question? Um, and they get to respond if they want to or not, but typically, they want to help the broadcast, right? Grows the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with players. If I can get in any sort of like, not inside information, right? But like, hey, what's the game plan here from a player's perspective? This is what we're hearing from your coach. And so it just gives a different um, feel to the broadcast. So a lot of that, a lot of reaching out, a lot of doing behind the scenes work. Um, and then, yeah, just studying of the game um, and the general ebbs and flows and, the tournament as a whole. So I'd say that's all encompassing besides just um, calling the games, right? There's so, yeah. like I was saying, there hasn't been many days off. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> so when you have, I hadn't really thought about how many games you're doing in such a short order. Like I knew the numbers, but I hadn't really thought about the process that that would entail, the effort that would entail. But it then also does lead to a lot more familiarity. Is there, or are there a couple things that like maybe you weren't as focused on or didn't know as much about heading into this competition that have become more consistent in your coverage, either like on field or off field. I feel like when you're in this type of situation, it lends itself to like inside jokes and little references that become bigger and bigger. I'm wondering if there are things that have become more consi- like more consistently involved in your coverage as the tournament has progressed. Oh, um, well, you know, in terms of inside jokes, that didn't become much of an inside joke. And like, there's always fun because you like, I think um, my play-by-play partner, Mike Watts, throughout this tournament, we've had a, a wonderful rapport. We've worked together before um, a number of times. But we we really were like, okay, let's let's engage the fans. The fans want to chat with us via social media. So we're like, let's have fun. And one in particular was an inside joke that was a lot of the um, – and it lends to the final because – Chicago has made it and the departure of Sam Kerr. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's a huge, like the thing is exciting about tournaments is that like there's repetitive storylines. Right. And the big one was the departure of Sam Kerr, arguably the best goal scorer in the world is no longer playing for the Chicago Red Stars. And like, that's not a negative thing. I mean, yes, she decided to go elsewhere at this current moment in her career, um, you can do what you want with that information as a fan or whatever that means. Right. But that's the matter. That's, 
That's just the facts. Mm -hmm. And for us, that's a massive storyline because in a positive way, right? Because you're like, okay, you have the best soccer player um, or the best goal scorer in the world, however you want to say it, um, who's departed your team, who carried your team, this league in goal scoring the past three seasons is no longer playing. And now as Chicago Red Stars, you've got to change the way you're going to play. And that what became an inside joke about this, and then not we decided to have fun with it, is because the, the Chicago fans were clearly like you know not happy with yeah. us bringing up Sam Kerr's name, and we were like, but this is great. This is great coverage for your team. Who's going to be the one to step up? Right, you're in these unprecedented times where Chicago has told us a number of times that internally they're having really important discussions amongst their teams. They started off slowly because of that. They were like hitting emotional wall before the tournament even started, and then. To that point, it's like, okay, how are we going to score goals? We have yeah. this group of players that are amazing, and we can't seem to score goals, right? And so that's a storyline that's fun, brings um, awareness to their team. Who could be the next star? Kalia Watt um, comes from Houston, right? She wants to make the national team again. Is she going to be the one, right? And so in terms of inside and jokes and all that, it's like that was a that was a big one. And, and we, I think, had fun with the fans and then started donating to one of their players, Sarah Gordon, um, in terms of um, a, a fundraiser that she was doing um, in regards to the bigger picture of Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. So we've been having a lot of fun, but storylines like that. So sorry I went long-winded. No, that's great. That's what, that's what I was interested in. And it is – it's the it's the double edged sword, I guess, or whatever it would be of like you if you don't talk about the Red Stars, then people are frustrated. But if you do talk about them and reference the fact that their biggest goal scoring <laughs> threat is no longer there, then they're going to be annoyed. Like you've got to try to find that balance oh, totally. or just risk. Uh, yeah. Uh, incurring the wrath of angry Red Stars fans. So right. I, I, I high, risk, high risk, high reward. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I feel I feel your pain there. Uh, but we should note. Chicago uh, did manage to produce some goals uh, last night. That is not a thing that they have done as consistently in this competition, as you said. Did they do something different last night in the semifinal against Sky Blue? Or is this sort of things finally coming together and the team gelling and just sort of hitting the right run of form at the right time? I would say it's a bit of both, right? Like they, they were really clear, Roy Dames, their coach, um, was vocal about, listen, when Orlando had to pull out of the tournament, here's how we scripted it. We had to change our whole process. We were going to script it. We were going to, um, you know, rotate players. And I think that added to some of the, um, why they weren't scoring goals, right? They just weren't having a similar partnerships all the time and they weren't build, you know, build that cohesiveness in the attack. But then also coming out last night, you could just tell there was a different energy mm -hmm. from both sides. Right. Um, but it was like, it was the Chicago team that got off on the front foot. And you could tell that even though that Sky Blue was ready for the game, they were a little bit disjointed or a lot disjointed um, defensively and weren't prepared for a team to press them like they did and just have players like Watt, um, Rachel Hill, um, running at them, dribbling with it, at them 1v1. And it really kind of pulled them, unbalanced them big time, and they got two goals early. So then they were able to settle in in a different way. But we hadn't seen them start a game like that before. And then we see them take a 3-0 lead, Sky Blue to, uh, pull two back. Suddenly it was a game. I was not expecting that. When it was 2-0 <laughs> so quickly, I was sort of like, well, all right, that's, that's the way this has gone. Uh, how did Sky <laughs> Blue get back into that game and maybe with an eye towards uh, the final this weekend, was it something that they specifically did or was it the Red Stars sort of easing off in a way that they need to make sure they don't do uh, this weekend in the final? I mean, again, I would say there, that was a combination of both of those things. I think 
Unfortunately for Sky Blue, they went down, but it also allowed them to settle into the game quickly. And one thing that's been, uh, I think, promising for their organization, they're aggressive in the offseason to bring in players like McCall Zaboni, experienced players that know the league well, um, were able to settle in, get on the ball, and really start to keep possession. And that's the style of play that they want to play. So it, um, I, it was a combination of that, them being a little bit more brave in what they were doing and sticking true to their philosophy. And then also, I think, Chicago pulling back, taking their foot off the gas pedal, getting back into like a little bit of a, a lower block and allowing for, for um, Sky Blue to be able to build up. So, and then, I mean, luckily for them, they just kept pressing and were able to get some two goals. And I think there were some lapses, uncharacteristic characteristic mistake mm-hmm. by McCall Zaboni, right, or sorry, excuse me, Julie Ertz yeah. to yeah. with the own goal. Um, I think it was a well, well-run uh, corner kick that led to the first goal with Vien off of McCall Zaboni's assist. So, you know, some uh, some different things that they tried that even I was a bit shocked about. So. Um, credit to them, but by that point in time, the game was pretty put away. And against an experienced team like Chicago, especially in their defense, it was going to be hard for them to come back from three zero down. Yeah, and I and I think it was even harder when you have a player like uh, Danny Colaprico there, who I thought was very impressive again, especially with her defensive showing, certainly in her passing range and her passing ability. I believe I'm correct in saying that she is the one that wins the ball back with a very uh, strong challenge, uh, then keeps it moving, that leads to that first goal. How important is she for the Chicago Red Stars? You know, it's funny that you bring her up because I was thinking late in that game and even after the game how important she is. And if you're just watching that game, there was so much action that she would go unnoticed a lot, right? And there's some players like Colaprico in this league that just do their job so well and don't get a lot of credit because their positional plays uh, magnificent. They screen the back line if you're in her position. She's a kind of like a holding mid and, and she, she connects passes, she connects passes. And sometimes those little things, especially throughout this tournament with the little preparation that go a long way to help linking a team and keeping them moving forward. And she's, she's not a big player, right? I mean, her stature is not huge and she plays big and you mentioned switching the point of attack when needed. Yeah. She's just, there's an understanding of the basics and what needs to be done and she doesn't get enough credit for that because there are a lot more stars or kind of flashier players that you tend to notice more. So you mentioned at various points that Chicago were pressing uh, Sky Blue, then Sky Blue started pressing. I think Houston uh, utilized the press pretty effectively against Portland. Portland tried to do the same. In your experience, when you're playing a team that is pressing, is sort of putting you under pressure so consistently, what adjustments do you have to make individually? What, what do players have to do to sort of make sure their brain is aware that the press is coming and how to handle it? But then also as a team, what do you have to do? How much more work is required? How much more on-the-ball awareness is required to handle a high-press system? Well, I, it, I don't know if there's like a ton more work to 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 be required of individuals because it's, it's it's all about moving off the ball and it's about the timing of the movement out of the ball. So if teams are coming to press you, then you have to make sure that your midfielders are moving at the right times because there will be gaps to be able to break the first pressure. The problem that people run into or teams run into is if it's too late, if only one one player in the midfielder is rotating and then there's no other outlet pass then it's too late and you're going to get pinned in and then off and running. That's typically what we see. But if there's, if there's constant rotation um, and the right rotation at the right time, then you can break presses fairly easily. Um, but at the same time, it'd be if somebody was sitting in the low block, you still have to have movement and you have to be willing to move the ball quickly to unbalance a team. 
Um, and then also there's always the opportunity to be able to like alleviate pressure. Like if teams are coming, just get it out, get it out of pressure, get safe and then regroup and see if you can use your own defensive tempo or, um, discipline to be able to either get tight as a unit or press them. And, and sometimes I don't think that we see enough of that balance of like, okay, let's just alleviate pressure, regroup together defensively or enough movement at the right timing to break the initial pressure to get out and go out the other side. Hey, everybody. Much more still to come from my conversation with Lori Lindsay. But first, I wanted to let you know that this episode is brought to you by Artifact. Artifact create personal podcasts for or with the people in your life. Could be either one. For us, it was, I guess, both. Uh, We use Artifact to talk about how we started the Total Soccer Show and sort of the origin story there. Uh, Then Daryl and Shannon used it to talk about Daryl's treatment and diagnosis. Or probably diagnosis and treatment would be the proper order of those things. And it's a really easy process to get going. You just head to heyartifact.com. You tell Artifact who or what the subject of the Artifact should be. You can invite interview guests. Artifact does the rest from scheduling to hosting interviews over the phone, then delivering a polished edit that wouldn't sound out of place on NPR. George even does the sort of NPR voice. Uh, Not doing an affectation, but it does sound like a passable hourglass. Well done, George. Uh, You can hear our episodes at heyartifact.com slash TSS or heyartifact.com slash Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L for that one. And when you're ready to make your own artifact, uh, you can use the code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact order. Uh, Once again, go to heyartifact.com, use the code TSS to get $40 off your first artifact order. Thank you very much to Artifact and to George for sponsoring today's episode. Uh, Now back to Lori Lindsay. And then again, from a player's perspective, uh, for you, like what were the drills or types of sessions in training that you felt like most helped you with understanding those patterns and understanding like where to be and how you needed to move in order to deal with the press? Uh, one would be like video to understand bef- before we even get out on the pitch to kind of understand where space is, right? Like not being in the line, right in the line with, it's hard for me if we don't have a video, but um, yeah, the way to explain it, you know, get beyond the defenders, right? You're not going to um, stand in between two defenders, even if they're like 10 yards away from you, because then it's easy for them just to cut you off. So get beyond the first line so you can receive the ball in a half turn. And even it's those simple things that like, there's a lot of times people aren't taught, right. And how to break that press. Um, but then also, you know, a lot of times what we've worked on for the urgency that you feel, I mean, that's the difference, right? When somebody's a team's pressing you, the, a lot of times a panic will set in because you haven't worked on that, the urgency that you feel when the press is coming so quickly. So in trainings, a lot of times teams and what I've worked on before as a player myself would be, you know, you have to break the press in a certain amount of time or coaches will give you, you know, 10 seconds to get out. Right. And they'll be counting. So you'll feel the pressure or and vice versa. If you're instilling the pressure on the team, you have to try to win the ball back within five seconds of losing it. Right. So then there's just like a higher tempo pace. And I think that's what caught Sky Blue off guard is that like the pressure was coming fast and furious and they didn't have time to regroup. So you saw some uncharacteristic mistakes of like Flores, you know, cutting into the middle to try to stop a pass and she left left a gap of room mm-hmm. in behind her um to be able to ex- be exploited so does that make sense like, yeah it's absolutely just like the urgency, yeah 
Yeah, and I think if people are struggling, because you're right, it's really hard to talk tactics and sort of explain it all out without having the visual aids. But I always go with the, I think it was the Pep Guardiola model of like if you are looking from one one goal to the other and you desi- div- like divide the field lengthwise into segments, that you should never have two players standing in the same sort of vertical line. Otherwise, you run into those issues that you're talking about. So no, that makes complete sense. Yes, it also then exactly. maybe, maybe, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say, and that's what happens a lot. And we've seen that with North Carolina, when North Carolina um, plays, typically they're really good at the press themselves and teams don't have the movement on the weak side where it's a typical, like you switch the point of attack quickly and you can be out and off and running. But again, it's like, if you don't have that movement or that awareness and body shape, that's what it comes down to, right? It's like the positioning of your body too, to be able to make that outlet pass um, to, to alleviate the pressure. That makes, so okay. you made a great yeah. point. That makes, that makes total sense. Do you think that then explains a little bit of what happened in the Houston-Portland game? Houston, obviously, with the 1-0 win. But both teams seemed to go pretty direct. It seemed like they were relying a lot on vertical passing. I think you in the broadcast were advocating that they slow it down, try to move it from left to right, right to left, and find some opportunities. Why do you think both teams did opt for that direct approach? Well, I think one thing with Houston is that they've realized – when they are energetic, I mean, if you look at like Rachel Daly, their leader, right? She's passionate. She shows a lot of her emotions out on the field, um, whether it's like positive or she's frustrated and like mm-hmm. it's fun to watch, right? Regardless, as a fan, you're like, I'm in. <laughs> and so, True. Um, and I think that they've realized like, hey, that's when we're at our best, right? Is like when we are going after teams, we have Rachel Daly up top with speed. Michelle Prince has really come into her own in this tournament. You have... Um, you know, uh, Vasali, who's been up top for them, that's provided a lot of energy as well. So they have, and then obviously Shake Room and Mewis coming underneath. So there's these players that have these attributes that are like high energy, good when they're running at the ball, can also play the final pass. So I think they've just kind of molded into that identity that, okay, we're better when we're on the front foot and we're attacking. And I think they felt like going into against Portland that they could utilize that, um, especially with Portland having such few numbers available um, coming into that semifinal. So that's one reason why I think they went direct. And then unfortunately for Portland, I think that they, they had spent so much energy in the quarterfinal, emotional injury, physical injury, uh, energy. And then on top of that, you know, one of the best players in the league, um, Lindsay Haran's out, right. She's keeps that team ticking. Catherine Reynolds with the concussion, Becky Sauerbrunn right early out earlier, just so many key players that were missing for them that by the end it was just bound to potentially break down because there just wasn't enough quality left with the fatigue setting in. And I don't think they had any other choice because just their, their Mm -hmm. basics of like keeping possession that we typically see from them just weren't there. Houston, for their part, did seem pretty gassed by the end. Uh, another very physically demanding game. Do you think that they can do it again for another 90 minutes in the final? Or do you think they're going to need to change up the approach uh, a little bit? And where are they in terms of injury concerns as well? I think I think Houston's actually probably the best, except they're, they'll probably still miss Megan Oyster, um, who's they've have like bit clear that she has like a cracked rib mm-hmm. or a thorax issue or something from a um, tackle that she got in the quarterfinal game against Utah. Um, but I think, you know, you're playing, this is your last match. We are, it's, we're unsure of what's going going to happen in the rest of 2020 for the NWSL. And I think you're going to have to see a little bit of both. You're going to, you're going to see this team, both teams come out 
um, excited, ready to go, amped up. It's their first final for both of these teams. But then also they're going to have to really pick and choose the times, decide when they're going to go. And then if they can't really like drop off as a unit. But if you start finding these two teams uh, getting stretched, back lines dropping, people are trying to press at the same time, which we saw a little bit with Sky Blue yesterday, then, wow, I think it's going to be a long game for both of these teams. There's going to be a lot of running for those midfielders and just it's going to be hard to get pressure on the ball. Uh, a player who has done plenty of running and done of uh, done plenty of position switching would be Rachel Daly, uh, who you mentioned <laughs> earlier. So she's been the star for the dash. I noted, like, in my notes from yesterday, I think I have her at various points playing as a center forward, a right forward, a left forward, center midfielder, sometimes <laughs> a defensive midfielder, and then frequently an overloading winger where then suddenly you had two or three attackers on one side of the field. Uh, how has James Clarkson, uh, Houston head coach, been using her, and what do you think is her best position? Where do you think she most thrives for the dash? I mean, her best position, in my opinion, is the number nine. But with that free-flowing, I mean, you just named, <laughs> like, seven positions, right? Yep. And, and so I think that is also a game plan, right? Her, her starting position would be a true number nine. She makes intelligent runs and, again, has the energy, the, the passion to commit herself to get into tackles, to commit herself to get into making dangerous runs in the box. And it's what James Clarkson said last year, where Rachel Daly goes, the dash go. Right. And so whether that's still completely true because they've filled in some pieces in um, a really important way that they, they needed to fill uh, I, you know, her being able to, to have that free role as well is important because the one thing that makes her such a special player is the amount that she works. She demands that the opposition pays attention to where she is. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, if you lose the ball, number one, where's Rachel Daly, right? Because she will hit you on the break so quickly and she'll be committed to finish those runs. And it doesn't always come off. It doesn't mean her decision-making in the end is the best, but you have to be aware. And so then what that allows is for her to be able to have that free-flowing because you know that she can get in behind. But then if she decides not to, then you can have somebody like Michelle Prince get in behind. And Rachel Daly is good enough with the ball at her feet that she can come back and help set play. And... Most importantly, I mean, she's been really dangerous on the wing as well. So if she pulls out wide, then it forces defenders have to say, hey, are we going to stay with her? But she serves in really quality balls. And we saw that in one of the best goals of this tournament when she delivered uh, uh, a cross into Shake Room. Hmm. So in the opening round of the game of the tournament. So number nine, best position, but fluidity and be able to roam and and do what she wants and, and help link play. That makes a lot of sense, especially the part about like her having the freedom when she is the number one target for opposition defenses. Because if you're sort of like, okay, she's going to be the number 10, she's going to be central, we know if we don't have the ball, somebody needs to be on her. But if she is free-floating on all over the place, you, you can't really assign that one player. You can't really have one player focus in on sort of negating her attacking presence. So that makes a lot of sense then, why you would wa- want her sort of roaming around, causing problems wherever she can. Do you think that that's a thing that the Red Stars can sort of game plan against? Or is it more just about everybody needs to be alive to the their most dangerous player, and then we'll go from there. I think when you're looking at the Chicago Red Stars back line, that has been their most consistent play over the last several seasons. I mean, obviously you had, don't get me wrong, you had Sam Kerr on the other end, right? Scoring massive goals and was so dangerous for them. But they have been... I've heard she's good, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's decent. Um, <laughs> you, have, you 
they have been really solid defensively, and that's whether Juilliard's is in the back line or not, or if it's Tierney Davison um, or Juilliard's in the sixth role as a, a holding mid. Uh, they, I think, have done a really good job and have a really good core that will be able to say, hey, listen, we know this player's dangerous, but if we are tight as a unit and we're in constant communication on her whereabouts, then we can keep her at bay. And, and, and we'll, we'll see, right? Because, I mean, I think that was the one thing last night that will be different um, coming into this this championship game is the fact that like we didn't see a ton of that consistently from sky blue, right? That, if you're going to have a knock on them going forward is that they just didn't have enough to get in behind consistently to really threaten that would open up a game for them. So yes, while they're really good in possession and created some different chances by playing through balls and stuff, there was nothing that was like, Hey, Julie Ertz and Sarah Gordon, you need to be on the half turn consistently ready for full out sprints to get in behind. And that that alone allowed Chicago to be able to, I believe, press early on as much as they did they did and take risks. And so the championship game will look a little different because you're going to have to be mindful of Rachel Daly being on that back shoulder constantly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for Chicago in that final, we talked a little bit about Houston's injury issues or relative lack thereof. Uh, I think you all said on the broadcast Chicago played uh, 5v5 for four minutes in training and picked up two more injuries, one of which was Casey Short. How banged up are they, and how do you think they'll look in the final? Do you think they'll get some of those personnel back? Yeah, I was just uh, um, reading something that there's a um, post where we're listening to post-game conferences and stuff that uh, Rory – thinks that Casey will be good to go for the final, but that will ultimately be up to her and how she's feeling. I mean, he has been vocal about, you know, not risking anybody. Um, but it sounds like some other players like Morgan Bryan or Morgan Gatra is out for the rest of the tournament. Um, and so is Nagasato, I think. So there's still some pieces that would be really helpful for them that won't be available. But I think all in all, Two fairly healthy teams giving the demands of this tournament. So uh, final question for you then. Uh, with the final this weekend, say we're 30 minutes in. From a Chicago perspective, what will you be looking at and thinking like, okay, this is definitely working. I see what they're doing. They're going to win this game and vice versa. For Houston, what would it be after 30 minutes that you'll think, okay, their system is working. They're going to win this game. I think if it's if one of a Chicago – They've gone up a goal early and they're picking and choosing their times when they're staying compact and when they are, uh, when they're pressing. So they're not just going to sit back the rest of the game. Right. Um, but they've also, um, are getting more players like Savannah McCaskill in the number 10 position on the ball, like in dangerous positions, helping running at back line and they're going to be good in transition. And then, you know, what's interesting about this game with, with, with Houston is that they, I think they're more importantly, they need to stay compact. They cannot drop the back line and leave to Sophie Schmidt in the middle because we know that Christy Mewis and Shake Room, their two number 10s in the attacking mid role, like to go forward. And they could be really exposed if there's not good rotation and helping defensively. So for Houston, it will be making sure that they also don't drop the back line too early and are getting, though, more consistently Mewis and Groom making runs, setting play out of the midfield. 
All right. Well, Lori Lindsay, thank you very much for taking the time on your day off, no less. We should note uh, to talk about uh, the NWSL playoffs, the NWSL final. Uh, I look forward to having you on the show again, ideally in person, uh, if and when normalcy resumes. But until then, thank you very much for uh, taking all the time today. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks. Loved it.